2: Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard, but by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash historyhack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups, to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to another installment of History Hack. This is a a weird one today, but like, no, not weird, kitsch, I think, because uh, this is a Charlie has dragged me to this location and we're now going to talk about it. Uh, We're doing a bit of Bedford history, aren't we, Charlie? Why um, and how did it come about?
3: Oh, this is great. Now, listen, Bedford is the greatest place in the country, (laughs) as you know, Because I live there and it's awesome. And I'm really excited today because um, not only have we got a brilliant guest, but we've also got a very personal friend of mine who has agreed to come on and chat to us. So Victoria Carl is the Museum Officer Volunteering and Engagement Manager at the Panacea Museum in beautiful Bedford. She's recently overseen the curation of a new exhibition exploring the lives of servants and the working classes at the Panacea Society, which is running until the 23rd of July. But she's going to tell you all about the Panacea Society and all of this bonkers, brilliant Bedford history. Hello, Victoria.
4: Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me on.
3: Uh, we're, We're thrilled to have you here. Now, you know that I will... Tell anybody who will listen how amazing Bedford is. You agree with me, right?
4: Absolutely. Yes, we have to promote Bedford all day, every day. That's what we do. (laughs) It's a very (laughs) cool
3: place to live. So, to kick us off and get us talking about the Panacea Society, what has Joanna Southcott's box got to do with Bedford?
4: (laughs) That is a good question. Yeah, I'm assuming that a lot of the listeners will probably have heard of Joanna Southcott's box. If not, I will go into it a little bit. But there's quite a nice parallel story there between Joanna and between what was later founded as the Panacea Society. So Joanna was unusual in the sense of being a female preacher. Not that she was an official preacher, of course, because women weren't allowed to. But she did gather quite a lot of followers, even in her own lifetime.
3: When when um, was this? When are we, we kind of talking with Joanna Southcott? So her dates
4: are seventeen fifty to eighteen fourteen. Okay, and she was pretty prolific, more in her middle age and into the older age. And something that is not talked about quite as much as her box, which we will get to in a minute, is that she claimed to be pregnant aged sixty four. Okay. With with the new Messiah which is an interesting one. Oh. <laughs> yes, she did. And this this was all over the newspapers. This was very well-known fact at the time. Um in I guess this would have been 1813. And yeah, she in her role as prophet publishing all her writings every week every year doing all these magazines and publications getting the word out she had this message you know this was it she was going to give birth to a new Sila, to shiloh who was mentioned uh in genesis and she was hang absolutely on. she was convinced that this was happening she that this was real um, this is crazy so hang on <laughs> shiloh that's yeah. brad and angelina's baby right it is <laughs> it is the name of their baby but that's where they got the name from. It's a biblical record. Ah, Okay. Yeah. So I, I don't know if they think their child is the new Messiah. Maybe. Could be. But that's where that name comes from. And yeah, Joanna and her followers completely believed that this was going to happen. So that is a slightly lesser known factor than her sealed box of prophecies. But that's a fun one. Anyway, um, unsurprisingly. What happened when she, she didn't, was, didn't have a baby. yeah well this is the thing people started to ask questions around the 10 and 11 month mark
2: yeah (laughs) i was gonna say like because obviously she wasn't yeah
4: Yeah. and yes the the non-believers shall we say started to poke fun and talk about it and everything and what was interesting is it was actually confirmed by a couple of different doctors they believed it too because she was showing certain signs and obviously the records aren't that brilliant but what we now think is that she probably had some sort of cancer
2: it
4: right. was causing swelling
2: uh, so it's like a mary tudor thing
4: mm. yeah so mm. yeah that unfortunately sort of convinced her that it was definitely all true so yeah she actually died so there was no shilo but to rewind i just had to go off on that tangent because it's so interesting to talk about it's a good one she is more known for her sealed box of prophecies which was much parodied I believe there's a Monty Python sketch about it
3: right okay. very,
4: it, was, it was very much in the culture and I personally have met a lot of people who say they sort of remember the advertising and people talking about it in the press it was very much this it was part of the zeitgeist for a really long time it's mm-hmm. actually a theme in the Neil Gaiman novel Good Omens as well right there is a version of Joanna in that story and her sealed box which is quite fun so anybody knows that in the box what's in the box I know wouldn't it be lovely to know so she has this sealed box and although she has a lot of published prophecies some of which are not really that thrilling some of which are quite accurate um she has a sealed box which has a lot of stipulations for how and when it can be opened. And essentially, it is still closed, which I think makes it that much more interesting. It's still sealed after all this time. And that's what where the Panacea it? Society comes in because <laughs> they believed in a lot of her teachings, a lot of to do with the founding of this Panacea Society was believing in Joanna's teachings and in her her sealed box. And they were very keen for it to be opened because they thought, you know, Perhaps it was the end times and we needed the knowledge that was in there. But there's a lot of stipulations around it and how it can be opened. Um,
2: Where does the name come from, the Panacea Society?
4: So they're actually formed in 1919 as the Community of the Holy Ghost, which is their original name. But then the word Panacea comes into it because in later years they had an international healing ministry, which people could write in for. And that's where the name the Panacea Society comes from. So their healing ministry was based around linen squares, which are very portable, it's very convenient, Mm -hmm. and they can be cut up into a one-inch square and posted out. Or people could write in and ask for them. So the founder, who believed that she was directly in contact with God, One of her many beliefs about herself was that she could heal her own self and therefore others. She would breathe onto these squares, imbuing it with her holy powers. And then that could be posted out and you could use it for any sort of healing. A lot of people reported back that it had helped them and you could put in water and drink it, make an elixir. So
3: Uh, it's like a tea bag.
4: Kind of, yes. A holy tea bag, let's call it that. (laughs) I like that. But honestly, thousands of people reported that it helped them and they would write into the society and thank them and say that this has cured me, this has really helped me. Send them letters and thanks and money sometimes. All Mm. across the world. They were very international so this leads us on to, you You mentioned the founder. Mm. Who was the founder and why was, why was she so special? I do think she's a fascinating one, and this is a reason that I am endlessly interested in the panacea society, is it is founded by a woman. It is predominantly female members. It's women running it. It's very it's female-led, which I think gives it a kind of feminist angle but yes Mabel Baltrop actually founded the society in 1919 and she founded it after she had been told by God that that's what she had to do now make of it what you will but she started to hear messages from God when she was in a mental institution Uh. yes she had actually checked herself in which was quite interesting she asked to be admitted, I, think, I believe twice, on account of nerves. Right. Okay. So if you're a lady of a certain standing at this time, that would, that would be nervousness. However, she was quite upset when she got there the first time because she realised she was surrounded by what she would term lunatics. Ah. <laughs> because, yes, so she would see um, a working class woman mental health issues as a lunatic but that's not her you know she's nervous she's nervous and she needs some help to calm her nerves so yeah she started to hear these messages and completely believed that god was talking to her and she had to start this religion she needed to and interestingly coming back to how much we love bedford uh, she then found out the that Bedford was a sacred place to all of this because Bedford is the original site of the Garden of Eden.
3: Hang on, stop <laughs> the
4: actual phone.
3: Now, look, I've, I've tried to entice a number of people to move to Bedford over the years because yes. we've got the best indie venue, Esquires, and the greatest bookshop, Eagle, in the whole world.
4: This is all true.
3: But are you telling me that people should buy property and move to Bedford? Because this is the Garden of Eden.
4: Yes, essentially. That is true. <laughs> we have got the Garden of Eden here. And it's all, um, it's all very interesting and convenient, I think, isn't it? that It happens to be the Garden of Eden. Mm. And that is where Mabel had moved to in 1902 with her husband um, and her family. And then, yeah, it just happens to be the Garden of Eden. So she's just in the right place. At the right time, and um, God tells God tells her all this. Um, I'm
2: just at this point. I'm a little bit like, is she crazy? She sounds crazy, but
4: well, I don't
0: know. <laughs> point of view, I mean, isn't it? In that aside,
2: <laughs> does it matter if they brought comfort to people? Does it matter mm. if they brought comfort to people with their tea bags and their society and yes, gave people a haven and stuff? Does it matter how it came about? Really
4: exactly yeah and i i always defend them if and i i try never to use that that crazy word or anything because it's all relative isn't it yeah is just... <laughs> and um you know reality is perception so that to these people this this was reality this was just facts and, and they, they had just a following. following they had a big following will come to yeah. that in a bit but yeah they um this is just the truth to her that's her truth and Obviously, we we don't have footage of her or anything um, or recordings. However, she must have been incredibly charismatic. People just were completely drawn.
2: You know, you get the preachers in the tents in America. Um, It just sounds a lot like that, that, doesn't it?
4: Yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels with that um, and with fundamentalism and things like that. I saw an interesting piece once where somebody, unfortunately, I don't remember the author, but they essentially, I'm paraphrasing, they were saying, oh, if Mabel Bulthrop herself had been allowed to be a priest in the Church of England, which was her church at the time, Mm. maybe none of this would have happened. It's because she couldn't do that role. She couldn't preach. No one would listen to her. She Mm. couldn't be taken seriously at the time. She sort of ends up creating her own thing. Yeah. Which really is a lot what Joanna Southcott was doing as well. There's really Uh, interesting parallels between them.
2: What's the connection to... How does Joanna's box get to the Panacea Society? Is she a member of the society?
4: She wasn't, no. So Joanna was long dead at this point. However, she has this following, which anything, it grew after she died. People continued to share Joanna's prophecy, her published prophecies, not the secret ones. We don't know about those. But the published prophecies were really popular. It started to spread around the world. There's different factions of what we would call South Cotians. There is um, the Christian Israelites mm-hmm. who spread into Australia and the United States. And the House of David as well. Who were, they were in, a, in the UK. And, yeah, it just carried on going, really. And there was a lady called Alice Seymour around the time that just before Panacea got founded in 1919. And she was really trying to get the word out on Southcott. She completely believed it. She put her own money into printing pamphlets, getting them out. And she gave one of these pamphlets to Mabel Boltrop, And that kind of changed everything because Mabel really connected to this Joanna Southcott stuff. She thought, this is it. This is all part of it. And that's how it all kind of became merged with Mabel's own beliefs about being in, in connection with God and everything. Gosh. And they began to, into the 20s, try and get the box to be opened, bearing in mind they didn't even have it yet. It was not even in their custody. Because it, it had been passed down uh, through a particular family who are custodians of it under the, all these terms that are around it, all these ways that you have to look after it. They didn't even get hold of it for quite a long time. When did, when did they get it? 1957.
3: Oh, ah, now that is interesting. So that's, is Mabel still around at this time when the, the society no. came?
4: No, that's the thing. That's what's amazing as well is they're so convinced and they are literally paying for national advertising to get this box open. They're convinced it's going to change everything. We're going to have all this knowledge, it's going to help us get towards the end of days, which is what they want. They are like essentially an end of days cult, these people, like so many that we know of today and are in the media. And they are just desperate to get it opened. But they didn't even get their hands on it until 1957. So they're campaigning to open a thing that they don't even have.
2: So they have it now?
4: Yeah. So after 57, they did get to keep it. And they would always keep it in a secret location. And since the last members died and it became what is now the Panacea Charitable Trust, the box is owned by that trust and kept by it. And it has never been opened. Whoa. And it's in a secret area and I've never seen it myself.
3: Hang on. I've, I've seen Joanna Southcourt's box at the Panacea Museum. It's there. You can have a look at it
4: no that's a replica that's ah. a, made by um a movie prop company back when the museum <laughs> opened because that's how special it is no one's even allowed to look at it um but that's the interesting thing as well and a strong argument around not opening it aside from the fact that it's mysterious as long as it's closed which I quite like um <laughs> there are still active followers of Southcott not uh-huh. in this country but there are some, they're actually the Christian-Israelite offshoot. But they are South Southcottians, they are followers, they believe in the box. And there's a few in Australia and America. Um, just because I vaguely
2: remember from our visit there, Charlie, um, the chances of everything aligning with the rules for opening this box aren't high, are they?
3: <laughs> no. What do we need to happen? Because well, I I wondered if there was an argument for opening it in 2020 because I didn't think things could get much worse.
4: I did I did think of the ladies of the Panacea Society. I must admit I think they would have absolutely seen that as a major sign of the end of days. Absolutely. But um, yeah, the main stipulation and the one that was mentioned in their national advertising that they paid for the most important thing is that 24 bishops of the Church of England must be present. That is the number one stipulation. They, they made that easy for them, the, the
3: Panacea <laughs> Society. There's places for the bishops, right?
4: Absolutely, yes, because, of course, if if the box opening is definitely going to happen, which they fervently believed and tried to encourage, because the end of days is coming, this all links, if the end of days is coming, there's going to be peace on earth. Therefore, the box has to be open because that has to happen before everything can be perfect. Mm. Therefore, the bishops, those 24 of them, they must be coming. And you have to plan for this. That's 24 people. That's quite a lot of catering. That's (laughs) quite a a lot of towels. Yeah, (laughs) It could be happening any day now, honestly. So they bought and furnished an entire house and had it stand empty. But maintained it so that these twenty-four bishops could stay. I mean, and they it, did not come. They it's fun and
2: good using the c-word and calling them crazy. In that, can I? I'm just chucking in a question that isn't on the list here. For me, hmm. 1919 is significant. These women have seen the known world collapse around them for five years, and as you say, they have no. She has no agency, does she, to be able to? Preach about it or talk about it, and no official place. I, is it telling that this is when they get formed and when they begin? Absolutely,
4: yeah. I do think it's a factor, of course. At that that point in history, it's going to inform everything that's happening, but especially for these women, yeah, it was such a time of social change as well. And I think a lot of these ladies who would join up were older; mm. they were really they were more Victorian to be honest in their values and their ways of living and the world had surpassed it It had gone past them everyone was moving on
2: they're not the kind of they're not of an age group where and obviously their status as well they're they're not wage earners they don't need to go out and earn money Mm -hmm. they're not the generation (laughs) that's going to go out and become munition workers um and maybe they want the vote but they're not going to be campaigning suffragettes and stuff they're 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 responding in a different way aren't they
4: yeah it's an interesting point actually you bring up suffragettes because there was a prominent member in the early days of the society who was an older lady that had actually campaigned for the vote her name was ellen oliver Mm. but she, she was one of the only ones i have to say a bit disappointing they do have some feminist angles to them but this was not one of them they weren't really encouraged to be political in any way because it was seen as what they would call earthly matters you know voting would be earthly matters they're meant to be above all that you know they're becoming pure they're becoming spotless so they weren't they were not very good at engaging with the modern world really and they were predominantly middle-aged and older
3: Mm.
4: and you think oh were they, they widows maybe to do with the war actually most of them weren't they were just unmarried ladies a few widows but a lot of unmarried ladies who were sort of searching for a purpose in life and it gave them a real purpose
1: in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi i'm marcus smith host of the constant wonder podcast the world offers marvel meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature art science culture history we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
0: Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Gosh. I mean, the, the women of the Panacea Society, some, some prominent members are actually related to Mabel as well. So they were related to the founder. She had a family. Um... What do we know about Dillis Baltrop and and the family around um, around Mabel?
4: I think Dillis had it particularly difficult, I would say, um, in the story. I, I do you like to call it a story because it does feel <laughs> like one. It's quite epic. It should be a movie, honestly. But um, Dillis, I think, suffered in particular because she was quite young. She had um, three older brothers who perhaps could make a little bit more sense of this but being an actual child into a young teen and your mum suddenly saying oh actually I have a direct link with God in fact actually I think I am an incarnation of Shiloh I am the daughter of God and a final prophet and everyone must follow me and that, that girl basically lost her mother because her mother became someone else her mother became Octavia whoa yeah what a name isn't it brilliant (laughs) I do love it I think of her when I see one of those Skodas Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that just obviously that comes from the root the word eight number eight essentially she sort of picked that name for herself although some of the others suggested it because they had worked it out in a way that suited them to make her the eighth and final prophet before the end of days and there are the, the, other, the other seven prophets, of course, included Joanna Sarsicott and this um, list of eight prophets they refer to as the visitation. And that is all these prophets leading up to the final thing, the end of days. So, yeah, back to Dillis, She did have a bit of a tough time, I think, because of that. She essentially lost her mother to this religious practice and it, it took up Mabel's entire life.
3: How old was Dillis when this change started happening?
4: I think she was around 10. Oh, it must have been very tough for her. And um, obviously, as we have discussed at the beginning of all, all this, Mabel, Octavia, whatever you want to call her, she did have quite a lot of mental health struggles herself. I think she almost definitely had depression and quite extreme OCD from things that I've read. Mm. Obviously, there wasn't a diagnosis for that kind of illness at, at the time and dillis did suffer with quite a few mental health problems as well and you sort of think was did she inherit that or, or was that a part of this very difficult pressurized life that she lived growing up i think she felt a little bit trapped
3: and she's moved into that into that house she's moved into that environment there's no yeah, separation okay.
4: Well, that's the thing, um, because the new exhibition that's starting, I was doing a bit of research into the census and that, I think, is a really stark, really interesting way of looking at it. You look at the 1911 census, it's a family home. Mm. Mabel's husband has died at this point. So she is a widow and she's there with her three sons and Dillis. And then the next census, 21, completely different. That You know, the Boys have moved out or gone. Just Dillis, and then followers now—not family members. It's it's followers. It's people in her religious team.
3: Do we know how many been. there were from the census? Not. That...
4: Um, I think there was her right-hand woman lived with her, which is Emily Goodwin. We'll come on to her in a bit because she's complicated too. It always. <laughs> Um Peter Rasmussen, the right hand man. There are a few men. We don't blame them. Okay. <laughs> there's, a <few. laughs> uh, there's a handful. Um and yeah, I think one servant, which again we'll come to. The servants is a whole extra thing. And Dillis. So yeah, life had just completely changed at um number twelve Albany Road. Mm-hmm. It it had changed um as from this family home into a hub of religious experiences you know.
2: I know Charlie particularly likes the sound of Emily Goodwin Uh, she she has the title of the divine mother so who was she?
4: (laughs) Emily Goodwin yeah I am I'm simultaneously fond of her and find her quite scary (laughs) 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 she is quite a formidable woman by all accounts and um, they really did keep a lot of records so we've got quite a lot of proof as to how she operated but she was an interesting one because she really wanted to join the society I think it was 1921 she came came to live with them but how could she because there was this assumption of being a certain class a certain amount of wealth a certain you know amount of property even something like that that would enable you to join up and be on the level as it were Mm. They would talk about um, everyone being equal, but they really weren't. You know, I always think about George Orwell with these ladies. Right. They're all equal, but some are more equal than others. You know, absolutely that. So here's Emily Goodwin. She's the daughter of a baker. You know, mm-hmm. she doesn't have a lot of money to bring. How is she going to join up? And she found a way in that Mabel needed someone to nurse her husband's elderly aunt who was living with them at the time and she came as a nurse and just stayed and essentially just worked her way up the ranks Mm. to the point that when Mabel passed away in 1934 Emily would naturally took over and she had come from basically being a nurse slash servant and got all the way to the top but that was a lot to do with being this divine mother which in a similar way to Octavia, she proclaimed herself one day. She was like, Oh, I am I'm the divine mother. <laughs> and she cast herself in a in a new role as the feminine aspect of God.
2: You can just so do that.
4: Yeah. It's like, so okay. Well, this is how they do things, right? Yeah. This is how it all started. So I guess Emily Goodwin, she thought, Well, that seems like a good idea. But I my feeling, having seen the records and things, I'm not sure that she believed it to the levels that octavia did you know octavia this is truth Mm. she hears god this is what she has to do this is the garden of eden and this is her task in life Mm. emily i think really wanted power and it was all very convenient that emily suddenly started to channel the divine mother that was the interesting thing she didn't hear messages from god she was an aspect of god
2: I find it so interesting. So, like, basically, you're all equals, but you have to bring something to the table, otherwise they don't yeah. want you. But she, she's yeah. that determined that she... Act, not only does she get inside, but she takes over.
4: She really did in the end, yeah. yeah. Like the, I don't think there was any particular question about who would run it after Octavia died. It was going to be Emily Goodwin. Gosh. You know, and uh, she... You know, Aunt Fanny, who had died, who she'd come to nurse... Well, she naturally carried on living in Aunt Fanny's bedroom, which is next door to Octavia's bedroom. You know, it's all she's right there. And then they have this new—they forget forget the Holy Trinity. That's old yeah. news. They have a new system. <laughs> they have their own new system, which is um, God, Jesus, Octavia slash Shiloh, um, and the Divine Mother. It's a four four square set they've got here so you know it's huh, fine how important is that in, in bedford you've got the daughter <laughs> of gods yeah and basically their version of the holy ghost the divine mother that female aspect
2: just charlie even as an, a study in psychology of these women who who perhaps feel like they have no place in the world so they make their own it's fascinating
3: it's it's absolutely you you just can't get over that they genuinely believed it it wasn't this wasn't like a it in so many ways you look at the, the panacea society and the museum and the house and you think it must have been just like a bit of a ladies club but no they really really believed these things um so much so that i think i'm okay aren't i as well victoria you don't just have to live in bedford town
0: center That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST.
4: It's true, yes. So because of, uh, well, the gardens of number 12 Albany Road in particular being the Garden of Eden, they also developed this theory. And I've no doubt that I'm sure God told this to Octavia as well. But there is a radius of safety Excellent. at the end at the end of days at the reckoning judgment and if you are geographically within this circle then then you're going to be safe because you're blessed because you're near this epicenter and uh you and i we're fine we're good, <laughs> me, we're good. i live on um, the
2: same train route that tensley <laughs> <I'm straight laughs> you're fine great so we'll
4: be fine yeah yeah so uh, <laughs> if there is a proper apocalypse we're going to be all right this is the made, radius of Sutton
2: station people if you're in southwest London <laughs> <laughs> it does go through um, Wimbledon as well
4: it goes out sort of towards bedfordshire villages essentially but they really believed in that as well it's this this mm. circle of safety to the point where the members would travel out with but the its left squares and bury them bury them around the perimeter. But they're watching the world
2: burn and they've created this haven where they can't be touched. It is fascinating study in psychology.
4: Well, haven, haven brings me on to something else. Haven's a good word because they actually had a haven, a literal haven. They have a building called the Haven. What's that? um, Which is still part of the museum campus today, although it's not at the moment open to the public. Well, that's an interesting one. That belonged to a member named Kate Firth. got very involved with them and it was her giant house that happened to be next door to Mabel's slightly less ostentatious house. And she thought this was great. Kate got right in with them. They could use her house. They had meetings. Some of the members stayed there. And then they had a big falling out. Which was a great shame because they lost that resource of this giant house. And then Octavia's right hand man, Peter Rasmussen, who used to be a professional builder, he had to build a big wall. <laughs> to separate the properties because Octavia had had this huge falling out they'd all fallen out with Cape birth because Cape birth dared to have a bit of a thing with a priest and there was not we we're not allowed to have a thing
3: oh my goodness so, so the two women fell out Octavia gets Peter to build a wall Yes. Who who is this? We we need to talk about Peter Rasmussen. Who is he?
4: Peter's a really interesting one because he's he's one of the sort of only prominent male uh, people in the society that you can talk about with any great detail. There wasn't that many of them really, mm. certainly not very prominent, but he was absolutely her right-hand man and I I feel like as she got further into this religious fervor and her sons, you know, Physically left to try and get away from her. He was Mm. like a little, he was like an extra son, I would say. It was sort of sweet. And he was so convinced by her that he moved from where he was living in Australia to move to Bedford, you know? That's how good Bedford is, right, Charlie? <laughs> I got to move from all the way from Australia to Bedford because it's the place to be. But he just wanted to be part of it, and he wanted to be near to her. And he said, "Is there any space in your house? I must live near to you." You know, he believed in her so much. And she says, "Well, we've only got the attic, which wasn't really a bedroom." <laughs> so he lived. He lived in the attic, just just to be near to her. Oh, and he was in his early forties at the time, I think. Which still made him a lot younger than a lot of the other members, and he, um, being a retired builder, it was very helpful building that wall and many other things.
3: You need a bloke around the house to do bloke jobs sometimes, don't we? I mean, we all do.
4: <laughs> that was the thing. Yeah, I think he he really he did believe in it completely, and he was very fervent about all of that. But I do think his practical assistance was very valuable.
3: Good at putting the bins yeah. out and
4: you know. And he outlived her by a long time as well. It's,
2: he's not the only sort of, and we've already talked about Emily Goodwin as well, but there, there's plenty of working class people sort of finding a way into this, isn't there?
4: There is, yeah. And that, that was your route in really was to come and work for them in some capacity. And something I only found out quite recently through research is that they were very often not even paid, the servants. Essentially, you, you were blessed, you were lucky to be able to be part of it, to support these exalted, these members, you know, you should be grateful. And they were sometimes given perhaps an allowance, but it wasn't really equivalent. It wasn't a wage, I would say. But something to go back to them being more Victorian than Edwardian, they absolutely held on to their class systems, including the idea that you had to have at least one servant, you know, These were mostly middle class ladies rather than upper class, but they absolutely, you know, you had to have at least one servant. Otherwise, were you really, Mm. you can't set your own fires. You can't cook your own dinners. That would not be becoming. (laughs) So they would take on these usually younger women who were almost entirely, um, without exception, believers who wanted to become part of it. And sometimes they would live in the house with whichever member. Sometimes they would live somewhere around Bedford and travel in. But, yeah, it, it was supported by a substantial number of working class people that just don't really get talked about as much, even in the museum itself.
3: And that's why you've got the new exhibition that's on at the moment, to shine a light on these, these people
4: yeah yeah absolutely I just on a research level I found it really interesting to think a little bit more about them what are their stories what are their backgrounds how do they feel about this you know essentially being having to work really hard while the other ladies pretty much have afternoon tea Mm. (laughs) that's the thing it it kind of was a nice ladies club as well there was afternoon teas. there was plays in the gardens there was tennis because they might as well have a nice time while they wait for Jesus.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk a bit more about like how the society works, but just I, my World War One head is on now. This thing was founded in nineteen. In nineteen eleven, there are three boys living at home, yeah. and they're not there after the First World War. What What does mm. the war look like? What happens to the sons?
4: Yeah, so that's Eric, Ivan, and Adrian, and um, one of them was killed in a dog fight. And the other two actually were in service, but did survive. Okay. But um, unlike Dillis, they were a bit older, and their way of dealing all this was to get away as quick as they could. Okay. So, yeah, they did not stay in the home, and actually, both of them ended up emigrating, leaving the country, which I think was <laughs> quite extreme. Yeah, they actually left the country and just cut all ties really
2: yeah they're not having any are they it is it's weird it's like but their response that's their response having been participants in the war compared to the female side of the family's response at having much less agency in what's happening around them
4: yeah well that's what what's so interesting yes they're the panacea society they're actually they're inventing a lot of rules there's rules on rules on rules on rules and you have to do this and you have to do that there is also a strange freedom in it because especially if the ladies are moving to the campus, as they call it, well, that's a choice. They're actually making a choice about their own lives. They they have a purpose, you know, they have this incredible religious purpose. What could be more important than getting ready for essentially God returning?
3: Mm-hmm.
4: You know, so I, I do think it really mentally gave them something to concentrate on. Like yes, they could have their afternoon teas and eat the delicious cakes that I'm sure were baked by the servants, not them. <laughs> um but but they were also filled with purpose and just fervent believers. And there was also um they had their services every night in the custom built chapel on site. So they really did do their religious practice.
3: I mean this is something that you you know, I've always found this when looking at looking at women in wartime and and you you see all the all the like girls who are serving together and they're off duty and they look like they're having a whale of a time and it's that idea that for a woman there was a very strict path you would you'd be at home then you get married then you'd look after that home and you'd probably be on your own if you didn't have daughters you'd probably be without the company of of other women in a sort of fun social setting. So actually something like the society, as as crazy as it can sound, it must have been quite lovely for them to be surrounded by other women with similar backgrounds and to have that company and to have that shared purpose. It sounds quite nice. Do we know much about their thoughts? Do we do we have any of their voices can we their letters are, do they still exist or are they lost to history
4: um no they were absolutely top level record keepers and we have almost everything um the records aren't quite as good after say the 1960s but yes certainly those first few decades they would keep absolutely everything because this is of international religious significance to them everything has significance you know pages and pages of typed out rules of of how and what you can do and somebody would have to take notes of every meeting you know we have an enormous archive which is held by the panacea charitable trust we have a professional archivist who takes care of it and uh, brings out various pieces when we want to do an exhibition so we we're able to have original documents on display and things like that it's quite a huge archive of information these ladies kept everything
3: does the daily scripts come into this is this a part oh, yes of there's
4: copies of those yeah so this is what i like to tell people in a slightly flippant way i'm sorry octavia um <laughs> that she would get essentially her daily phone call from god now, God would contact her about every day about 5 p.m. I think it's very <laughs> good of him to contact her at the same time so he can fit around her schedule. And he would contact her and give her some information that would be passed on as the actual gospel truth, like the real, <laughs> in the genuine, genuine terminology, actual gospel truth, right? And these were known <laughs> as the daily scripts. And here, here's where I think it gets quite interesting because, yes, there's a lot of Church of England in this organisation. They're mostly that. They're an offshoot of it. Not that the Church of England would want to admit that, but it was true. <laughs> and now they're getting into spiritualism, essentially, because she would write these down via automatic writing. She would go into a trance when receiving these messages and write these scrawls somebody would have to try and de- decipher them. And they'd be read aloud every evening in the chapel as the literal direct word of God.
3: What did he say? Have we, have we got any
4: of these? Well, we must oh, yeah, there's a, there's a, yeah, absolutely. well in the archives. But, I mean, a lot of the times it's quite mundane things. You know, God could tell them to sort certain things out. I, I believe it was a direct message that God said that these linen squares had to be created. And he also said that they had to be cut in a one-inch square with pink and shears (laughs) (laughs) which was very specific (laughs) um but yeah there was more general things and information about how how to become a better person because that was a very important thing to them and this is where i think it crosses over a little bit with scientology interestingly Mm -hmm. is they were also all about essentially ascending to higher levels and becoming spotless it was it was called the overcoming and in overcoming, you had to have no flaws, essentially. You couldn't snipe at anyone. You couldn't have an argument. You couldn't do something furtive. You know? um, and they were encouraged to report on each other in this quite creepy way where you would have to report to probably Emily Goodwin, really, and say, well, I saw this person doing this, or they said this to me. Because <laughs> then you're less enlightened. You, know, you have to become perfect for Jesus to want to come back.
2: I have to ask. So, the healing ministry—is this free? I, mean, I just—I don't want to sound like I'm crapping all over their philosophy because I—I don't think they were necessarily not genuine. But is it a money-making enterprise?
4: No, they never charged for it, and I, I think it probably did cost them a lot of money because they would physically post these squares all over the world. Yeah, um, I, I think Norway was one of their biggest recipients. And after then, there was this sub, subplot happening in the story of um, them having to track down people who could write Norwegian to translate these letters and things. You know, There's this entire huge admin task around it then of sending them out, of replying to people. And then also they had a system where they um, wanted updates from these people because they want to know ha- how much better are they feeling, they need to keep records. So, yeah, they actually never charged. And sometimes people might send them a bit of money to say thank you, but that was just kept for Jesus coming back. They were just, you know, money was more stored than anything. They weren't looking to accumulate particularly.
3: Well, I mean, I, I sort of don't mean to sort of spoil this for anybody, but I'm, I'm guessing that in the end of our particular story here, the end of days doesn't come. And Jesus doesn't come back. What happened to all the
4: money? Yeah, it's well. Something that we haven't actually covered is what the rules are about sex and marriage. Mm.
3: Well, now, okay.
4: <laughs> if if we take a step back and think about the fact that the end of days is coming, and there's going to be paradise on earth, and so on and so on, and you know, we'll all have astral bodies or something, <laughs> like there's no need to be forming these bonds that you know everything's coming to an end right. so if you were a married couple you could say both join the society if you really wanted to but you cannot there's no art there's nothing no funny business you can't share a room um so i mean really if you don't allow there's no children or anything okay. they couldn't have that because they like peace and quiet as well I mean, you can see where this is going because if they're not allowed to get married and procreate, how on earth do you carry on this organization? They are going to just get old, they're going to die Mm. waiting for the end of days, and that is what happened. And they ended up uh, two members rattling around some of the panacea owned buildings. I don't believe they actually lived on the campus where the museum is, but they lived in some of the other buildings that society that the society owned and they were just still there still believing in the 1990s into the 2000s no yeah this is what's really interesting is it's in some ways relatively recent history parts of it because the last member Ruth Klein died in 2012 wow I know living memory there's lots of people that met and spoke with her I wish I'd had the opportunity but unfortunately I didn't.
3: So Mabel Octavia died back in the 30s? Yeah she
4: actually died in October 1934 so if you think that she founded it in 1919 that's not actually really that long and it is quite amazing and a testament to what she had built in some ways that People were still joining. It was still growing and it still carried on without her.
2: Um, it is mad, isn't it? Because And because they had money and they, they didn't splash it around that, hmm. the house doesn't need to go anywhere. The house is still there and people can visit it. And it's uh, where I met you. Um, so tell our listeners, <laughs> yeah. because you can yeah. go. And it is a fascinating um, little excursion in Bedford. Tell listeners how they can visit, what will it cost them, um, and what can they expect to see.
4: Yeah, well, that's a really great thing, actually, about the the fact that the members were very careful with money and they kept it. Was that it was able to become what is now a charitable trust and a grant giving charity that gives money to um, local organisations. People can then apply, and they give money to specific projects, and they've been doing really good work for for like a good few decades now. But something else that's really great about having a well-funded trust behind it um, after the last couple of members died is we can keep the buildings going. You know, they were able to be refurbished and interpreted and have original pieces put back in them. Everything's sort of restored rooms. And we've got this wonderful little time capsule in Bedford for people to just immerse themselves in this very strange story. You know, people say to me, what, what do you do for a living? And I say, I work for a museum about a cult. <laughs> Just go quiet. I'd... <laughs> and I'm like, well, what do you say to that? I mean, I have to explain to everyone I meet about these people. I have proudly
2: it. have your fridge magnets of Mabel and is it oh, just brilliant. the one that you said? Yeah, the other one. proudly on my fridge as as the Looney <laughs> cult ladies because I just think like, <laughs> so what if they were a little bit mad? And so what if that's their mental health led them to create this as a means mm. to feel safe in a world that they did not understand because it was changing so fast and so much and it was so mm. violent. More power to do
4: yeah, and it, it gave meaning to the lives of, of all these ladies who needed some meaning. And these, these men, too, including the last one of the last two members was a man, weirdly. John Coghill, he was Scottish and had moved down to join the society actually a year after Mabel died. So that's quite interesting, the timing there. So he came as a young man in 35 and stayed all, all the time until he died. He was one of the last two members and it just gave him a purpose. And Rhys Klein, who was the final member. And uh, people that met her said that she was still absolutely believing it and um, that she had the blessed squares and she would take the water every day. And she did live a long time, so it might have helped, who knows? But you can know. you can go and visit the Panacea Museum, our own little weird haven in Bedford, and um, that we're open Thursday to Sunday. Uh, right through to the end of October where we shorten our hours a little bit but yeah do do come and visit us and immerse yourself in the story and it's completely free it is
3: yep completely free free to go and see this and uh, my my favorite bit is the the 1930s house it's the entire house not changed since Octavia departed and her bedroom is as it would have been and You have her spectacles, her reading glasses next to the bed, and you just think she might walk in the room at any minute. It's incredible.
4: Yeah, well, that is something that they kept going for a long time, certainly into even the 50s and 60s. If a member died, they would keep their room perfect, just close it up, keep it as it was, because everybody was meant to be coming back. When Jesus (laughs) comes back, everybody comes back. It's going to be paradise, and you know they're at the epicentre. They're in the Garden of Eden. That's what's going to happen. So, of course, they'd have to keep everything neat and tidy, as it was.
3: One more grisly story to end this on. When Octavia died, they, they didn't really believe that was it for her, did they?
4: No, I knew you were going to bring that up, I thought, oh, dear, here we go. <laughs> but, yeah, of course, you know, they're fervent believers. They can't believe that their prophet, their messiah, how could she possibly be dead? So they did try and revive her. They wrapped her in blankets. They tried to warm her. They really thought she was going to come back. So they thought, oh, maybe, maybe she's going to do a with Jesus. Give her a couple of days, she'll come back. <laughs> and she didn't come back. I think it was d- day four. They thought, right, we, we actually need to get a coffin. It was not very nice. Oh, bless I know. Yeah, again, I don't I don't know what that must have been like for Dillis. Can you imagine? I don't know if she was living oh, no, in the She's house still door there. Door. Yeah, I know the 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 two boys that were still living were it's a good job they didn't witness any of that. But yeah, that was that was the level of belief that she was going to come back. But but then it's fine because they are all going to come back. So, you know, maybe she wouldn't need her physical body.
2: I feel for Dillis, I do. Because the two boys, obviously, as young men, they just go off and emigrate. But, I mean, surely her options were more limited. Um, and I wonder how invested she was or how it was just her lot in life, really.
4: Yeah, I, it's, it's an interesting question. I think she did believe it, but she wrestled with it. And she actually got away at one point and went to stay in France for a time and you think oh fantastic she got to see a bit of life but then you read into it look a bit more no she was staying with other sealed panacea members who happened to live in France so okay. it's not like she really ever got a break um one of her brothers i think it was Adrian Baltrop really campaigned to try and get her out of that house he tried to get to her he tried to get her out he saw it as her being trapped there mm. and he never succeeded so what happened
3: to Dillis? Did I mean when her, when Octavia died? Did she did she just sort of go right? I'm free, and was she no. did she go then.
4: No, because as well, I suppose that's all she'd known, and it was a, it was an odd life for her. I mean, maybe some of the servants would be a similar age to her, but for the most part, it was her and much older ladies. She'd had this strange life of just being with much older women and not really having a lot of contact with men in her own age. So I think it's just kind of all she knew. She did move out of. Number 12, Albany Road, at least. And she moved around a a few different properties that were owned by the society. So that is something she at least sort of had a change of scene. But she led the rest of her life as part of the society in one way or another and eventually died. Still part of it, so she never got free.
3: Poor old Dillis. yeah. (laughs) <laughs> listen Victoria thank you so much for telling us all about all about the Panacea Society the Panacea Museum is a just a jewel in the middle of Bedford which is clearly the Garden of Eden easy to visit from London come and come and see us uh, Victoria remind us where can we where can we read about the the museum if we're not in Bedford is there a website people can go to
4: yeah if you just head to panaceamuseum.org you can find out all the information about our new temporary exhibition servants and the working classes at the Panacea Society and also about all the permanent exhibitions that we've got and the events that we've got and please follow us on all social medias we're Panacea Museum across all socials.
3: Fantastic thank you so much Victoria Cole.
4: Thank you thanks for having me
1: when our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts so to this end we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests latest and greatest books you can support them and you can support history hack too 10 percent of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book.